Good morning. Over the past few weeks, I have tried to preach some lessons that basically take us back to basics, um, getting us to look at some things that maybe those of us who've been in the church for a long time have known, but things which visitors tend to notice about us and uh, that might be a little bit different. And so far we've talked about uh, singing and why we sing as opposed to using instruments and the biblical reasons for that. We've talked about our giving and, and why we uh, insist that um, it's for members only, if you will. And this morning's sermon is no different. It's going to be a very basic thing for a lot of us who've been in the church a long time. But uh, at the same time, hopefully it's something that you can use with a little bit different illustration or perspective as you talk to people um, about the Lord and what he has done for you. If you read the bulletin this week, if you got it electronically or had the chance to read that, you might recall this opening paragraph, which says, the longest word in the English language is some scientific word for a protein that is 189,819 letters long. Some would say, that's not really a word. I would be one of those. The longest word found in standard dictionaries is pneumonocult, I'm sorry, I knew I was gonna mess this up. Pneumonultra microscopic silico volcanoconiosis. It's a disease that you get in your lungs from breathing in volcanic ash. The longest word in the Bible is Meir Shalal Hashbaz, the name of Isaiah's second son that represented impending doom on Israel from Assyria. However, as long as these words are, there is a word that is longer than any of these. Brother Kevin Colley, who wrote this article, and those are the opening two, uh, opening few lines of it, then goes on to explain his reasoning behind what he said about a longer word than any of those, but if you haven't read the bulletin, I'll let you home read it rather than take away your surprise. But both this morning and tonight, I want to talk about what I consider not to be the longest, but what I consider to be the biggest little word in the Bible. I call it that because while it is only two letters long, or two letters short, I suppose you could say, this little two-letter word absolutely defines the difference between those who will be saved and those who will be lost. This little two-letter word, as we are going to see over and over again in Scripture, completely describes the entire difference between those who will be in heaven for all eternity and those who will be in hell for all eternity. This very word itself, and this is how I want us to think about it, is the dividing line between those two things. It is the dividing line between those two things, just as surely as the great chasm that we read about in Luke 16 is the dividing line between, or that separates the saved from the lost in the Hadean world, just as surely. Now, 
What little two-letter word could possibly have that kind of power? What two-letter word could possibly be the direct, definitive, all-encompassing difference between those whose immortal souls will spend eternity in hell and those whose immortal souls will spend eternity in heaven? Is there even such a word? I assure you there is. And we're going to see it throughout the scriptures this morning in a bunch of different scenarios. And in every case we look at, this one two-letter word will be the difference, the dividing line between those who are saved and those who are lost. Just as surely as the walls of an air-conditioned building separate those who are cool and comfortable on the inside from those who are hot and miserable on the outside. This little word is that big of a division or signifies that big of a separation. I want us to watch that in every instance that we see this word. What is this most powerful little word in the Bible? It is simply the word do. Do. And yes, I made it a very big little word. Do. Turn to me in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 7. I want us to watch this word do, and I want us to watch how it divides. It is the dividing line. It is the chasm between the two, the saved and the lost. I want us to see this wherever we see the word in this form, do, or the word does, because if someone does something, they do it. It's just another form of the same word. And I want us to watch how clearly this comes about. Matthew chapter 7 beginning verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does, there's our word, do, does. He who does the will of my Father in heaven. You see it there? Right out of the gate. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. The doers, that, that word do is what separates those who go to heaven from those who do not, who do not go to heaven. In fact, Jesus goes on to talk and say, Many, verse 22, will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They'd done some good things, but they did not do the will of the Father in heaven, and that was the dividing line. In fact, Jesus goes on to talk about this even more. He says, therefore, remember the therefore connects it to what he just said, what he's about to say with what he just said. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, there's our word again, if you hear them and you do them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine, notice in both cases they hear, everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain descended, floods came, winds blew, beat on the house and it fell. What's the difference? The difference is in the doing. The doing defines the difference between the two. Plain and simple. Not hard to understand. In Luke's account of this same event, he, uh, 
tells us how Jesus sets these words up with another unmistakable validation. Luke's account of, of this idea of building on the sand or, or building on the rock. Luke puts in another phrase that Jesus used that also helps to validate for us this same lesson, to separate those lost from those saved. Luke chapter 6, if you would please. Luke chapter 6, look at verse 46. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? There's more to being a Christian and a disciple of Jesus Christ than saying that Jesus is Lord. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet do not do what I, who you claim are your boss or your, your Lord, do? Uh, tell you to do. Why do you not do that? And then he goes on to explain, just as we saw in Matthew, whoever comes to me, hears my sayings, and does them, I will show you what he is like. And he repeats the same thing about building on the sand and the rock. Do is the difference. Do is the dividing line. James, half-brother of Jesus, would also later write and echo Jesus' sentiments in the Sermon on the Mount that we've just talked about. In James chapter 1 and verse 22, when James wrote, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Listen, we can sit in church building all our lives. We can be here every time the doors are open, but if we're just hearing the words and we're not doing them, they're not doing us any good, and we're deceiving ourselves, thinking that somehow church attendance is somehow God's got this little record in heaven that's, that's an attendance record chart. And if we get all the slashes in all the right spots, then we're in. It doesn't work that way. We can hear it all. We can hear it every day. We can play sermons on our smartphones uh, as we ride down the road. We can hear and 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 hear. But if we ain't doing, we're deceiving ourselves. Doing it is the dividing line. Jesus made this point on a number of occasions, but up near the end of his ministry, he makes this point a whole lot, or, or he makes this point very sharp, that this little word do is once again the dividing line between those going to heaven and those going to hell. Turn with me to Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25. Some will say, well, I, I thought Jesus took care of everything on the cross. He did. We'll get there. Hang in there with me. Matthew chapter 25, up near the very end of his ministry, Jesus said this, beginning at verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each one according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Obviously, Jesus is talking about going back to heaven, leaving the blessings in the hands of the disciples. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them, and he made another five talents. Likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground, hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well 
done. There's our word. Well done. He didn't say, well said. Pretty arguments are not going to get the job done. He did not say, well thought. You reasoned that out real well. Just because we think something may be a certain way does not mean that it is. Paul found that out, Acts chapter 26, 9 through 11. I thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes on to tell how wrong he was. The Lord does not say, well said. Wow, how articulate you are. No, well thought. No, no, you put that together, reason it well, and that's not what he said. What'd he say? Well done. Do. Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. This man was saved in, in the, the illustration here. He who also, he also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, do. Not thought, not reasoned, not said, well done. Good and faithful servant. Don't you want to hear those words? Don't you want to hear those words? Rather than depart from me, I never knew you. I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. See, saved. Then the one who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. Don't miss the fact that he knew. He says, I knew you. Just saying we know Jesus ain't getting the job done. He said, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. Wicked and lazy. You know what that translates to? You didn't do. If you're lazy, you don't do. You did not do, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, gathered where I have not scattered seed. He says, you were familiar with me. You should have known. You ought to have deposited my money, and et cetera, and et cetera. But do you see there where the doing is the difference? Well done, good and faithful servant. I want, as with most of these lessons that I'm trying to do on some of the basic stuff that, that we already know, but to, to reemphasize, I want to try to find an illustration or an analogy. And, and for this one, I couldn't find one in my mind that was more timely or appropriate than Green Valley Bible Camp. I want you to really think about this. Each summer since 2010, I've had the privilege and the blessing, with the exception of the COVID cancellation, to go down and enjoy, as one might put it, a little piece of heaven at Green Valley Bible Camp every summer. Now, let's say that you are somebody outside of the church who's never been to Green Valley. Let's just say for a moment that's who you are. You know, each one of our teams was encouraged, each one bring one. So let's assume that this is one of those bring ones from the outside. Let's assume for a moment that you're a person who's never been to Green Valley and you've never been there, you're not part of the church, okay? And so you hear all about the camp. 
You hear all about it from this person who knows about it, this person who's been there. You hear all about it from the one invited you, you who invited you. You hear all about the fun, and you hear all about the time together, and you hear all about the lessons and the activities and, and everything that goes on down there. And, and you just you think, wow, that, that, that sounds like a place I want to go. Sounds like a place I want to be. That just that I, I really want to go. You also hear from this friend who invited you, you hear all about the hundreds of thousands of dollars that have been poured into that camp to prepare that place for you, to prepare it with some of the new facilities for you, for your visit. And then, because you want to know more about it, you go online and you read about Green Valley Bible Camp. You read about the history of the camp. You read about the establishment of the camp. You read about this, this list of all the things you need to take, your, your Bible and your, your shorts that come to your knees and everything that you need to take. And, and you get really studied up on, on preparation to go to Green Valley Bible Camp. And you read all the rules that the directors have put in place because you just want to be so prepared to go to this place. Not only have you read all about Green Valley Bible Camp, you've actually gotten on Google Maps and you can tell right where it is on Montanay Road right there. You know exactly where it is. You know it exists. The friend who invited you has even gone so far as to tell you this. If you can't afford it, that's been taken care of by somebody that's willing to pay the price for you. If you can't afford to pay what it takes to register for the week, there are those that will pay the price for you because you can't afford it. So, you've heard all about it, and it sounds great. You've done all the research, you know that it's there, you certainly believe it's there. You really want to go with all your heart and soul because it sounds like such a wonderful place. The price of your admission has even been taken care of by somebody else. Now the big question. Listen closely, church. Listen closely if you're hearing this lesson for the first time. Question. Is simply hearing about Green Valley Bible Camp and really truly believing it's there alone going to guarantee that you make it there for the week? Is it? is the fact that you really want to go going to guarantee that you get in for the week? Is the fact that somebody else has already paid the price or is willing to take care of the price of your admission alone, is even that going to guarantee that you get into Green Valley for the week? Is it? Because no matter how much you may hear about it, no matter how much you may believe upon it, and no matter how much you want to go to it, and even despite the fact that your price of admission has already been taken care of by somebody else and it is offered to you as a free gift, there is still one thing 
that you have got to do. There is still one thing that you must do before time runs out at 2 o'clock today, and that is register. Because if your name is not in the register, you're not going to get in. It is essential to attendance according to those in the positions of authority and according to their rules that you register. Now, if you truly believe what you've read and heard about the place from those who know, and you really believe that the place exists and those who have made the rules for your attendance had the authority to do so, if you truly believe what you've read that everybody must do before they can go, even if the price has already been paid for you, and you really want to go, then what are you going to do? You are going to do the one thing it is required that you must do in order to get there, aren't you? Even though everything else has been taken care of. The preparation, the price, all of it. There's still something you've got to do. There's something that, that must be done. And that is that registration. Now, that separates those going from those not going. Do you think that there may be kids that would like to go to Green Valley Bible Camp who either have to work or something that aren't going to probably be able to go the week they want? Probably. Probably there's going to be kids that want to go that, that aren't able to. But one of the things they must do in order to get there certainly is register. I want us to take that reasoning and apply it to the following examples of conversion in the New Testament. You can turn there. I'm not going to read all of these. They're very familiar. But please do turn there and look them over and make sure that what I'm telling you is biblical. Turn to me to Acts 2. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 41, we have an example of 3,000 people that are saved on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 22 and running through verse 36, Peter preaches a gospel sermon to them. He tells them about the one who paid their price so that they could go to heaven. He tells them that, how that's all been taken care of by the blood of Christ. And I want you to notice, in Acts chapter 2, those who believed him, what happened? Verse 37, at the end of his sermon, when they heard this, when they heard about the place, when they heard about the price was paid, when they heard about that they could go, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? There's our word. It, it, Jesus has paid the full price. Yes. Heaven is real. Yes. The, the, everything the prophet said about it, it's right. Yes. But there's still one thing, and even those people realized that they still had to do. Everything that had been done for them was not going to guarantee it. There was still something they themselves had to do. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what must we do? Peter told them, here's what you got to do. Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said, You've got to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what you've got to do. That's what you must do. And we know as we read down through here and come to verses 40 and 41, that as he testified and exhorted them to be saved, those who received his word were baptized. 
They believed him way back in verse 37, but listen, just believe in Green Valley's there, you still got to do something to get there. Just believe in heaven's there, just believe in that Jesus is the Messiah and the price has been taken care of. You still got to do something. You've got to access that. You've got to register. You've got to have your sins washed away so that you can go to heaven. There's something you must do. And they did. Even though the gift was free. The gift of Jesus is free. The grace is free. But you still got to access it. You still get to take advantage of it. And the difference is in the doing. 3,000 that day did what they had to do. They were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And it goes on to tell us in verse 47 that God added those who would do that to the church, that group of saved people. As we go on in Acts, we look at chapter 9. And again, I'm not going to read every verse of any of these. In Acts 9, 1 through 18, we have the story of Saul of Tarsus. We have the story of an actual conversion in the first century, somebody that was converted to Christ. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 18, Saul of Tarsus is going to Damascus to arrest Christians. And as he's going there, there's this great light, and he, he falls to the ground, and he cries out, uh, or the Lord says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And as they're having this conversation, verse 6 of Acts 9, so he, that is Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, it wasn't that he didn't believe Jesus was real. Believe me, Jesus had his full attention. You don't think so? Read the first five verses. No question in his mind that Jesus was real. He believed that more probably at that moment, certainly, than he ever had in his life, and, and maybe as much as he ever would. Lord, what do you want me to do? See, just his belief that Jesus was there talking to him wasn't enough. Jesus was real. Jesus had paid the price. Jesus had taken care of the price of his sins on the cross, but even Saul of Tarsus realized there was still something he had to do to access that. He said, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, now the Lord didn't say, look, just believe in me and everything's fine. That's not what he said. Look at what the text itself says. The Lord said, I am Jesus, I'm sorry. The Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. There it is again. Doing's the dividing line. Doing is, is just as much a dividing line as that chasm in Hades. You go into the city, you'll be told what you must do. When Paul tells this story later on in his life, several years later, he tells the same story again in Acts chapter 22. And in verse 16, he's told by Ananias what he must do. Acts chapter 22. That's not what I want. Acts chapter 22. That's what I want. I forgot one. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Saul of Tarsus falls down and says, what do you want me to do, Lord? The Lord says, you go in, I'll tell you what you must do. Sends him Ananias. Ananias comes and says, here's what you got to do, Paul. Here's what you got to do. And he did it. And it was the dividing line between having his sins washed away and having them still on his person. It was the dividing line between being saved and being lost. In Acts chapter 10, we notice the story of Cornelius. 
Cornelius is already a good guy. He's already a righteous man in, in the sense of a de being devout to God. It says in Acts 10 and verse 2 that Cornelius was a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed to God always. This was a man, a God-fearing man. But he wasn't saved yet. He believed in God. He believed God was real. He, he, he sought to prepare as best he could to be ready to go and meet God. Yeah, Acts chapter 10, verse 2. But as he's prayed, God has an answer for him. God says to him in verse 4, Your prayers and your arms have come up for a memorial before God. Send men to Joppa. Send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. Cornelius, you're a great guy. You're doing all the right things. But there's still something you've got to do because Cornelius still had sin. And until his sin was dealt with and removed, he couldn't go to heaven. He said, you send for Peter. Peter will come. Simon Peter will come. He'll tell you what you highlight in your own Bible. Must do. Well, we know over here in the end what, what Peter did, told him. Verse 47 of Acts 10. Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. God says, Peter will tell you what you must do. Peter told him what he must do. That was it. Let me give you one more. In Acts chapter 16, if you'd turn there, please. Again, we know the story. Paul and Silas are in prison singing hymns of praise to God at midnight, great earthquake. Jailer comes in, and the jailer asks the question, listen, it is amazing. It is amazing how clear this, this word do is in the dividing line. Listen, even the pagans knew it. Don't miss that. Some people in the religious world today say, all I got to do is believe. That's not what the Bible says. And even the pagans in the first century realized that it was a little more than that. They realized even people that didn't know God, the Philippian jailer, who didn't know God at all, still knew there was something he had to do. He realized that something was personal that he had to do. And, and so he says in Acts chapter 16, verse 30, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do? I, personally, what is, how do I get in on this? What, what do I have to do to make this work? What do I have to do to, to take advantage of the fact that there's this beautiful place I want to go? What have I got to do to get in there? And they told him, they said, you've got you to believe on Jesus. Now, at this point, he's going to believe what about Jesus? Well, he don't know until they talk to him. So they talk to him and his family. It tells us right here, let me read God's words instead of mine. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. Then they explained to him what he had to do. They explained to him how to believe in Jesus. And to all who were in his house, he took them that hour, same hour of the night, washed his stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Apparently, in a conversation that Paul and Silas had with the jailer and his family, he said, here's what you gotta do. This is part of believing in Jesus. You gotta go through his death, burial, and resurrection. You got to, you got to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Just like our analogy or illustration of Green Valley Bible Camp, in all four of these cases of conversion that we have covered, people converted to Christ biblically, not according to man, according to what the Bible says. All of these people were told about how the price had been paid in full for them to go to this beyond beautiful place called heaven. They were told about Jesus, how he paid the price. 
But no matter how deeply they believed that information, no matter how badly they wanted to go, or how completely the price had been taken care of for them, they still weren't going to be able to go just because they believed it existed. They still weren't going to be able to go just because the price had been paid. They still had to do something. They had to register. Because just like with Green Valley Bible Camp, the authority in charge has said no walk-ups. Now, now, they may change that because we don't have the attendance that we typically have, and I don't know if they will or not. But here's the thing, whether men change that rule or not, God's not changing his. It's been here for 2,000 years, and it's not changing. God has said what we have to do to access the price having been paid. And it is the dividing line between those who will go and those who will not go, just like it is right here in every example that we've seen. God has made it perfectly clear in his word and by his authority that simply wanting and believing or maybe even thinking that you're properly preparing, Matthew 7, 21, as we talked, at, talked about in the beginning, and despite the fact that a place has been prepared, cost has already been paid through the love and sacrifice of another, or it will be if you want to go to camp, you must personally and individually do something, whether we're talking about Green Valley or Heaven, before you can go. What have you got to do? You've got to register. You must obey the gospel. You must be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Obey the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So today, whether or not you're registered for Green Valley by 2 o'clock isn't really the biggest question. The biggest question today is, are you registered for eternity? Have you registered for eternity in heaven by repenting and being baptized specifically for the forgiveness of your sins in accordance with God's word? Have you done that? You see, the big question for you, you meaning any of you and any of you that ever watched this online, the big question for you has everything to do with the biggest little word in the Bible. Is there something you must do which you have not yet done before your two o'clock the end of your life comes. As you hear this lesson, you might think, well, okay, all right, all right, Doug, well, well, how do I register? How do I get my name on that heavenly registration list? How do I register for heaven? If, if it hasn't been clear already, we're going to go to one more text this morning because God's answer is incredibly simple. God's answer is incredibly straightforward. God's answer is easy to understand for anybody to the question, how do I register? How do I get my name on that heavenly registration list? How do I do what I must do to get registered for heaven? How? Well, God's answer is final, and it is found in Hebrews chapter 12. Please turn there with me as we conclude. Hebrews chapter 12. How do I register, God? How do I get in on this? I know the price was paid. I know the place exists, and I really want to go. And I believe everything you said about it, everything Peter and all of the apostles said about it, and I really want to go, but I realize just like these people, there's one more thing I must do. How do I register, God? 
before my two o'clock comes. Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 22, he says to these Christians, watch this closely. But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God. He's using pictures to describe one thing, one entity. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Don't miss verse 23. He tells these Christians, you have come to the company of God, to all of these things that God promised, and to the assembly and church of the firstborn. Who is the firstborn from the dead? Jesus. You have come to the assembly and the church of Jesus the church of the firstborn, the church of Christ, if I may, because Christ was the firstborn. You have come to the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Everybody who's a member of Christ's church is registered in heaven. That's how I get registered. Okay, Lord, how do I get into the church? Well, we've already read that in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, when they received his word and they were baptized, God added them, verse 47, to the church. They were added to the church at their repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of their sins. They became part of the church of Christ, the church of the firstborn at that point. And at that point, they were registered in heaven because they had come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. Listen. Around Christmas time, you see all these toy commercials on TV. And it will often say, accessories not included. Or you buy something, and it'll say, accessories not included, right? What we're to understand from Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, is this is a package deal. All accessories, this is an inclusive package. Everything is there. Everything you need. God is there. Christ is there. The blood is there. The church is there. Forgiveness is there. Registration in heaven is there. When you come to one, you come to all. But if you don't come to all, you don't come to one. It's a package deal. If you're going to come to God and you're going to come to Christ, then you're going to, to have your sins washed away through his blood and you're going to be registered in heaven and he's going to add you to the church just the way he did all these people that we've talked about in scripture. That's when you come to Christ, when you come to God. That's what the Bible says. Now I realize that's not what every man says. I understand that. But that's what God says and I'm most concerned about what God says. You too, right? That's why you're here, right? The deadline to register for Green Valley two hours and seven minutes from now. If your time on earth is up today, then your deadline for heavenly registration is up today as well. Will you be ready? If not, what do you need to do? Have you heard the gospel? Do you believe Jesus is the Christ? Have you already done that? Well, that's good. Are you willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, a Christian's bucket list, if you will? Have you done that? Well, good, you're halfway there, out of that list. Then you need to repent. You need to turn your life over to God. And you need to be baptized for the remission of sins. If you've never been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, that's something you need to do. And then, of course, be faithful unto death. That's how we get our names registered and keep them on that roll. Yeah, Jesus paid it all. Will you take advantage of what he paid for for you? Is the 
something this morning you must do. If so, would you please come to the front, let your need be known, and we'll assist you with it as we stand and sing. Maybe, maybe it's something here that, that you don't understand and you just need to study to understand it better. That's fine, too. We'll help you with that. We'll help you with anything. Please stand. <laughs> 